You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a weekly conversation with someone that I find truly inspiring. And if it all goes well, it's hopefully going to leave you truly inspired as well. So, you know, hi, thanks for being here. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being a part of it. Please check out some old shows. There's 43 other shows you can check out. Also, subscribe to the newsletter if you want to email me. And please tweet out a link to the show, osherginsberg.com is where you can find everything that you need if you want to get in touch with me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, It's been a big week for all of us. Um, I hope your week was good, as good as it can be. I'm sure you are as overwhelmed as I am when you look at the news this week. Kind of seems like everything's exploding all at once. But as my friend Ruben Meerman, who is uh, an earlier podcast guest, would argue there's a fabulous book called The Better Angels of Our Nature that argues that the world is actually less violent these days than it was in any previous time in history. But it's difficult to uh, conceive that when everything's in 100 frames a second HD slow-mo. But um, anyway... I hope it. Hope you. What, what can we do? I don't know what we can do. What can you and I do? What can you know? What can you and I do about planes getting shot down in the Ukraine or in Israel and Gaza? I I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe we can find somewhere to put some kindness into our immediate universe. Maybe that's what we can do. I did read something from my friend Wempy this week. He said something that um, really quite resonated with me. He wrote that 
I believe that the human and economic benefits of peace will always that will always outweigh. Let me start that again. I believe that the human and economic benefits of peace will always outweigh that of war. I can get behind that, Wimpy. That does make me feel better that you wrote that. However, wherever you are in the world, I hope you're safe and happy wherever it is that you do listen to this show. And so thank you for listening to this show. I hope um, this next hour gives you uh, some joy, some entertainment because it gives me joy to bring it to you. Shall we get to my guest? I'm stoked to bring you this. I've waited a long time to bring you this, and I'll explain why in a moment. This week, I'm joined by rapper, poet, and author, Omar Musa. You can find him on Twitter, at OBM Music. That's where he is. He's a fascinating guy. He came to mainstream attention when his remarkable appearance at TEDx Sydney gained international attention. This week, he's released his first novel, Here Come the Dogs, an examination of what happens when young men, young Australian men, get disempowered and rejected by society. It's no doubt a very heavy read. He told us the other night there's around 200 C-bombs in the book, but if you've you've ever spent any time in the grittier suburbs of Australia, you know, that's pretty much a regular flourish of the language. He and I talk about a lot of things, including what it's like to grow up as a brown man in a white country and how criticism of a government can be and should be a patriotic act or a patriotic act. Sorry, my accent's all weird since I've been living overseas. Anyway, he also, we also talk about the story behind the first Malaysian translation of Hamlet, which is pretty interesting. I'll let him get to that. Omar's a very talented man. He's managed to create a path for himself, one that's paved with passion about telling his story and his authentic delivery of that story, as you will hear, led him directly to publishing his first novel. It's called Here Come the Dogs. It's out now. I'll put a link to it on the the website. But that's no mean feat for a young man like Omar. I think he's just barely turned 30. So this was actually recorded about 10 months ago, but I was waiting until the book came out before I put it up. So you'll hear him and I say a few things that, really date us but hey consider it a free podcast time machine you can go back and hear what life was like last september so come enjoy a cup of peppermint peppermint tea in the afternoon with omar musa omar musa yes hello how do you do yeah very well man Good welcome. to be here. I'm great. I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, you are a fascinating Australian, and, I, I, and I'm really grateful to have you here on the show today Thank because you. we're here in beautiful Mondo Beach. We're yep. recording this, so occasionally you hear some vehicles driving by. Apologize for the uh, audio quality, but um, as we used to say in Brisbane, bodge is best. Bodge is best. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, you people, a lot of people know you. Let me just pour you some peppermint tea because this is, this is how hardcore we're about to get in this here. This is the gangster lifestyle right here. For some loose leaf mm. peppermint tea, man. Look at that. Thank you. It's for good a, for you. It's look. a very nice convivial sort of drink, isn't it? Peppermint tea. It's important, mate. Wars were fought over this yeah, stuff. Yeah, it is. It's ancient. It is, man. Yeah. A, oh, let me smell this. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's really good. Yes. 
See, when you get the loose leaf, it doesn't have that stale bag vibe. Anyway, enough totally. of talking about the quality of tea. That's really good. This is really good. You know what? I usually go to Aldi to get the peppermint tea because I'm a broke poet. But this is just a little moment of luxury for me here. Loose leaf. Mm. It's the key with the loose leaf. A lot of people would know you or the first time they would have come to see you is from uh, your remarkable TEDx performance they would have seen on YouTube, uh, which we will get to. But there's, okay. a, there's a lot of background about who you are, how you came to be, and you know that – I think before you, I don't really know if I was certainly aware of an Australian poet that was so visible uh, in the pop cultural medium before that moment. Right. There probably was. That's probably but a fair thing to say. Probably 70s or 60s. Maybe. maybe it was the last time that a poet, an Australian poet, was so, oh my God, he's one of us. Right. You know, and it wasn't Maya Angelou or someone from the US, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's been a bit of a weird journey to get to this point. I mean, I've gone through several manifestations, I guess. I mean, I've always been into poetry, but uh, I was looking for a medium of poetry that was modern and accessible, and I couldn't really find it um, when I was in high school until I found hip-hop music. And then that was when I really got into it, and I knew that was the type of poetry that I want to write. And then, you know, years and years of being an MC, randomly by chance led me to slam poetry and I got really into that. I was just at a Cam I got invited to a Canberra poetry slam, a competitive form of poetry, and they just needed someone to make up the numbers. Bro, and we're gonna break all this down because this okay. is the stuff I'm I'm really, really interesting. Okay. But obviously I am who I am because uh of the way I see the world. The way I see the world was uh the you know a kid raised by two doctors. Right. Uh, both of my parents are, are, are doctors. Okay. Uh, so therefore if there's evidence we'll believe it and if there's new evidence we'll sure. change what we believed yesterday. Yeah. So what kind of people taught you how to see the world? My parents. I come from an artistic family. Um my father was a poet and an actor in Malaysia. My mother uh went to NIDA. And That's the National Institute of Dramatic, Dramatic Art. Art. It's possibly the most, I'm going to say next to Juilliard, probably the most successful uh, school of acting in the world when you consider the alumni that come out of there. It's a very powerful training place. Yeah, it is. Um, she went there in the 60s, did a diploma in directing and then got into theatre history um, after that and eventually moved to Malaysia to be a theatre lecturer at the University of Science Malaysia where my father was a, an acting student and uh, yes and so she was helping uh produce direct and translate the first Malaysian version of Hamlet and my father was the first Malaysian Hamlet and so he was a poet and an actor he then came to Australia to also go to NIDA so no one knows this stuff actually <laughs> here you go here's the exclusive so he came to Australia to go to NIDA he was in Hugo Weaving's year I think but my dad was in the directing course and so, yeah, I mean, when we moved eventually to Queen Bian, my mum started, which, sorry, she didn't start. She took over an independent arts magazine, which is now defunct, but it's called, it was called Muse. And so right from the beginning, I was in the, in the art scene, going to exhibitions as a kid, going to cabaret shows, theatre shows, concerts. And so I think I was very lucky in that way, but the, the arts definitely runs in my blood. Wait one so. second. How, how do you translate iambic pentameter into... Uh, well, this is the thing, actually. Even the sort of some of the simple line or the most famous lines, to be or not to be, you know, in English have all these different connotations, but then in Malay, it's really hard to get the um get the exact translation and the nuance, you know. And I think it was quite controversial. Even actually this or last year I was in Penang where they did this show and there were people still talking about it, saying, I didn't agree with this certain translation of this line because it didn't give the multiple meanings, etc. Um, but it was quite a seminal moment, I think. 
And so, yeah. so you were you were born there or here? No, I was born here. I was born in Barrel Hospital, um, and then moved to Queanbeyan when I was three years old right. into the flats. And what does your of, father's tell you about his? I mean, because both my parents are, are refugees. They right. at one point in their life were both refugees, right. and and they both tell the story of what it was like coming to Australia as an adult, right? And not being, even though they were both white, they both. Talked funny. Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> uh, what does your father tell you about his early experience, certainly in Queanbeyan? That it was really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they moved here to Sydney first, obviously, to go to, go to NIDA. You know, I mean, I think they moved in about 1980 um, and white Australia policy, you know, just ended five years before. My father's English wasn't so great. I think he felt very dislocated. And so that definitely informed me. When, when I was young, he would just say, it's not going to be easy for you, you know, in this country. Um, you, you will be treated like an outsider. And, uh, and he was right a lot of the time. Um, but, it, but what he said was it just means you're going to have to work twice as hard to, to get somewhere in, in Australia. It's a heavy thing to lay on a kid, man. I think so. But I think he was just trying to strengthen me, you know, and, and prepare me. And it was, it was true, you know. It's, it's so weird being someone who was born and raised in Australia – who has a love for the language, a love, a passion for English, um, probably speaks English better than the other kids. But then if someone gets in an argument with you, they can just tell you, go back to where you came from, you know? And that's such a confronting thing for a kid um, to, to face that sort of thing. Did you, get, did you get bullied at school? No, I've always been like quite an independent, I think, strong person who takes ownership of myself. So I never, I was never really bullied. And, then, and also like all the... All my mates from Queanbeyan were like the the Macedonian guys and, right. and stuff, and so it never it wasn't it wasn't too bad. But like I definitely saw other people cop it a lot a yeah, lot harder. Right. So as a kid, and I, it's interesting that we have this similar similar kind of youth because both my folks they came. Uh, my father had come from Prague. My mom had come from uh, Lithuania, and then she came and lived in Australia for a while and went back to London. That's where they met both right. in London, and so they came to Adelaide. Of all places, yeah, um, and just was starved for culture. So their big thing was anytime anything vaguely cultural or vaguely that wasn't rugby league, yeah, uh, or it's a knockout uh, yeah, yeah. was on. They would drag us and sure. go, kids, just 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 hold basically like like holding us up to the fire, yeah, you know, like just look at this, just be exposed yeah. to it. We don't care if you like it or don't like it. Just just here it is, yeah. Um, and I'm really I really thank them for that because that really informed me. That all my culture didn't come from the television. Totally. I mean, I, that's funny you say that because I think you're like a. Oh, this is such a cliche, but you were like a sponge as a child, you know. And you're watching the, watching the theater and performance, um, because now I'm a performer. I, th- I think a lot of my quote unquote training has just came from being a kid, absorbing it all and learning not just from the good performances but the bad ones. Like, how did they screw this up? You know, why is it that this didn't work? Another thing that was really crucial is that. Um, because my mum was, you know, not only the editor of this magazine, but she did a lot of um, theatre reviewing for the Canberra Times because that was her expertise. And so after every show, every movie, every exhibition, on the way back to Queanbeyan from Canberra, maybe half an hour in the car, we would analyse it, you know, analyse the shows and we would talk about it, my wow. dad, my mum and I. And so I think it meant that I've always had quite a critical eye for the arts, yeah, um, and then but also teaching you how to appreciate the good things, that, uh, good things in a performance, and the nuances of totally this much I like, this much I didn't like, and that's okay. And really to question things. We were just talking about this. Um, yeah, we. I picked you up car, and we yeah. talked about this in the car. Yeah, sort of questioning received knowledge, just 
analyzing everything and interrogating it. Um, and I think that was, that was really important. You know, I just remember my mum, whenever I'd ask her a question, she, if she didn't know the answer, she would go straight to the Britannica or whatever and, or to the dictionary and, and read it out to me so that I could understand it better. And also for her, it's just that kind of it was, I guess, instilling in me um, an inquisitive I get really. I used to get really Sorry. freaked out when I didn't know stuff. I used to get when someone asked me a question, I didn't know the answer to it. I used to really get bothered that they may judge me that I'm not that smart. But yeah, now yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm stoked when I don't know something. Totally. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now I get one thing that I learned today. I get yeah, to have yeah. it now. What a gift you've given me, and I'm really interested. I'm really excited when I don't know the answer. To I know something. what you mean, actually, because yeah, when you when you're younger, you sort of think that you know everything. But now I have no qualms with saying, oh, what. What does that mean? Sorry? Or what? It's usually what always is when that? people are dropping a band on me. Oh, yeah. have you heard of the lightsaber, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. bombardiers? Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. That's my always answer. Like, exactly. Not yet. I can't wait. Tell me about this person. I'm yeah, yeah, into it. Yeah. If you're into it, I'm into it. Let's go. Rather than, oh, yeah, I heard their first single. Yeah, wasn't that great? I heard about Triple J three months ago. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, because you'll get found out. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. So, and what then- was the record? What was the record that I'm. That, clicked it for you what was the record when you were looking for something looking for something what was the hip-hop record that turned up and you went oh i can do this i had a friend all the skater guys in canberra for some reason they all well first they used to listen like pennywise and things like that but then they really all got into wu-tang clan i don't know i guess everyone was probably about 13 14 all of a sudden all the skaters got into wu-tang clan and my friend matt lynn who i haven't seen many years sadly but he gave me a cassette and it had Jizza, Liquid Swords. It had Wu- Enter the 36 Chambers by Wu-Tang. I just remember there was a line. It was like the really famous one. Is that, you know, smoke on the mic, like smoke and Joe Frazier, the Hellraiser, Raising Hell with the Flavor. And I was like, oh, this is it. You know, this is what I want to do. And, um, and then after that, but around that same time, I also heard Ice Cube, The Predator. And I was really into, I'd, I'd been really interested in Malcolm X and the Black Muslims. And then I, the first one I bought, I think, the first CD was Public Enemy, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Holy Back. What a record. Uh, what a record, huge record. And, uh, and so, yeah, there was that moment. So around that same time, there was a, a documentary on SBS about the black Muslims. And I remember there was a tiny you maybe- the, uh, the Nation of Islam? The Nation the, of Islam, yeah, the, the Ameri- five percenters. The American- uh, you know, Sort of radical, yeah, like, like Black Panthers. Back, like, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, the, and there was a tiny maybe 30-second clip talking about the five percenters and how they had influenced- Hip hop and and it had this clip of Flavor Flav and Chuck D rocking this big show and and that also clicked in my head like ah oh, this is poetry it wasn't you know this is gangster or it wasn't I didn't even really consider it music I guess it was just it was poetry and um and what had instigated my initial quest for this type of performed poetry was goes back to when I was maybe around eight or nine there was a very famous Indonesian poet called V.S. Rendra the most famous Indonesian poet ever. And he came through Canberra and my parents somehow managed to get him to come for a rendang at, at our place in Queanbeyan. A what? A, like a beef, it's like a, a beef curry. Um, right. And this Indonesian is a, Malaysia. wow, that sounds tasty already. It's really tasty. Even though it's I don't sort of, beef, it sounds well, like, yeah. wow. It's so it's a big of, deal if you get this guy to come to your house. A really big deal. Obviously at the time, I didn't know what it was all about, but um my dad pointed at this guy and said to me, you see this man, he's a poet. When he performs poetry, he doesn't read it from the, he doesn't, you know, it's not boring and dusty and academic. He performs it to stadiums full of people. He performs it at political rallies. And I just, it's stuck in my head for some reason. Wow, this guy, poetry, you know, you can do that with poetry. Um, Because at school, poetry is always seen as something so boring. 
And so that just stuck in my head. And then it was hip hop that clicked for me when I saw that. It was like, ah, this is kind of what my dad was talking about. A little bit different, but similar spirit. So I'm 14, I'm 15, I'm picking up a guitar, I'm learning how to play, you know, middle of the road Pink Floyd songs. What was the first time you picked up a mic and rocked to school lunchtime? You know what? It wasn't till much later. I was still, I was writing a lot of stuff in my room, writing poetry, but Australian hip hop then was not what it is now. You know, it wasn't such a common thing. In Canberra, there were like there were a few crews doing it. Which for sure. year are we talking here? Um, okay, so I guess I was fourteen, maybe around ninety-seven, ninety-eight. So maybe like sound unlimited posse, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, coolism was around then in Canberra, right? Um, but I didn't. I wasn't really connected yeah. in with it, and so. Like it was still seen as a joke. Even, you know, rapping in an Aussie accent, people would laugh at that. Um, we're going to get into that later, trust me. Yeah. I have, we'll have, we're going to talk um, about that. And then, yeah, so I didn't do it actually until much later. Like I started recording stuff once I got out of high school. So it was like, you know, 2001, 2002. Um, the first thing I ever recorded was, a guy, was with a guy called Vance Musgrove who's in a, a group called the Aston Shuffle now, which oh, is like wow. a big, yeah. you know. Big deal. Big deal, yeah. Um, Ministry of Sound type stuff. But anyway, yeah, we recorded some demos. Then I moved to California, to Northern California in third year uni. And that was actually, I was 19, you know, or even 20. And that was the first time I rocked a mic. So it was quite late compared to a lot of people. I mean, in the in-between period, I'd been writing a lot, but that was the first time I finally mustered up, I guess, the You hadn't courage. performed even as a poet on the Oh, stage? no, I'd performed in the theatre. Like I was into um plays in uh-huh. high school i want to be an actor actually but you hadn't performed any of your poetry at this point no i don't think so I'm, i must have read something at school but i i don't i can't right, really remember right. it so you're a kid queen bian your father tells you when you're really like maybe as old enough as you can comprehend it listen omar it's going to be tricky you've yep. got a different name you look different yeah these whiteies are going to make it hard right <laughs> You get to the University of California, Santa Cruz, which I'm going to guess is a very, very diverse very campus. Diverse. And my life in the United States uh, has crystallized how very, very different Australia's perception of uh, integration of different cultures versus right. the United States version of integration of different cultures is. What did it feel like when... I can only imagine for you to... Was there a feeling of enormous acceptance suddenly totally. being in UCSC? Firstly, I'd been in Queanbeyan since I was a little kid, went to the ANU. You know, I felt very stifled. Like when you're in the same place for so long, you know, I was getting really sick of Canberra. And then Are you I, the one Malaysian kid that you know? Uh, no, there were there are a couple of others. But there like one hand worth? Yeah, one hand <laughs> worth. Right. One hand worth though. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 definitely. You know, just like, I can't even imagine that. I mean, my last name's Ginsburg. We were the only Ginsburgs in, in Brisbane. Yeah. Yeah, right. I didn't even know what my last name meant when I was a kid. My yeah, father right. would tell me all the time. So yeah, it's okay. We've got Jewish yeah, heritage. Yeah. You lost family in the Holocaust. I didn't know what that was. I'm in Brisbane. Right, right. We've got kids talking about, you see Wally Lewis did that thing? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't care. Exactly. So it was... Nothing at all compared to what you're talking about. Though. Well, you but- know what? It, it, it was okay. It was more just a general feeling of being a bit of an outsider, yeah. copying it sometimes because of, you know, being brown or whatever. Um, but then when 2001 happened, that was when it really all changed to become yeah. something more aggressive and more deep-seated, I think. I mean, I think it always sort of… No, you're talking 9-11. You're talking-, I'm talking 9-11. Yeah. Which also, Omar bin Musa, you know, it's just like yeah. immediately… You're identified as this this thing, this threat, and then you're being told in the news and that people like 
that are not wanted, you know. And um, yeah, so that was the that was the moment. But anyway, yeah, going to Santa Cruz, it was it was great, you know. I, it was such a feeling of, of liberation. I kind of was looking for the colleges on on campus, and um, and there was one called Oaks College. And I just looked at it and it was the minority college with dorms. And so it was sort of, it had been started by two Panthers, I think, in the, in the 60s. Two Black Panthers. Two Black Panthers. Which the, were the, uh, if, just Google Black Panther. Yeah. It is really important. Yeah. And I think they had felt at that point, well, this is a story. I, I, I actually should probably look it up to see if it's, it's true. But I'd heard that at that point, um, these two guys didn't feel like there were any safe, safe places for black people on campus in Santa Cruz. So they started this college, but then it eventually became a place where it was, um, it was all minority. So it was African-American students, um, Mexican-American, Asian-American, Jewish-American, gay people. And so I put it as my fifth preference just as a joke because I thought it was such a bizarre idea, like this kind of building or these buildings where all the minorities on campus are gathered. Somehow they put me... Um, in this in this college, because someone out, looked at Omar bin Musa. Oh, you're going there, you buddy. You know what? It was both that. <laughs> it was both that, and also my mate Dan and I were supposed to go together, and we had asked in Canberra, "Oh, is it okay if we live together?" And I think they assumed that we were a couple, uh, and so they were like, "Oh, it's fine," you know, like we we definitely we yeah we welcome you, and we were just going like we came out of this meeting going, "That was a bit weird." What did that mean? And then later, when I went to this college, I was like, "Oh." I think that's what they meant. Like, what was that like? What do you remember your first week there being like? Oh man, I, I hit the ground running. You know, I just went and introduced myself to everyone. I was just, you know, I was. I felt so free and so excited, and I wanted to make the most of my time there. I'd never lived overseas before, and I and and also it was exciting because being into hip hop, and then suddenly you're thrown into the middle of it, and hip hop is like lived and breathed. By every, you know, everyone you met was a, a b-boy or, you know, the guy across the corridor, he's a b-boy. The guy downstairs is a DJ. All these people are freestyling, ciphering the whole time. I just jumped right into it. Started, you know, I was doing battles. I was, you know, freestyling. And, Do you remember your first battle? First proper battle with an American? Um, yeah. Yeah. I had a very short-lived battle career. I, um, it was never really my thing, but I thought I'd try it out. And um, I... Got into, I think it was the finals of this battle against this guy called Tantrum, who's now like a world-renowned battle MC. Um, and uh, yeah, but he was so seasoned, he kind of just took me apart. But I remember I had one line that was really good. He was in this crew called Asterix Rising. And my one good line was just, um, you're not an Asterix, you're a question mark. And I remember the crowd going, oh! <laughs> but then like, because I wasn't used to battling, I was just like, oh, shit, you know, like started fumbling and... And then he got me. But, yeah, I was more into – yeah, I used to freestyle all the time. Now I'm not as much into it. But, um, yeah, there was a joy in it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And also I felt like – because most people start rapping in their early teens, I think, and I was, you know, already 19. And I felt like I was catching up on lost time. Right. What were you, you studying know? then? What's that? What were you studying then? <laughs> I wasn't really studying too much. But I was supposed to be studying um, anthropology and literature. I took some really amazing classes. But looking back on it, I think it was a bit wasted on me. Because I was just I trying to get wasted. Man, that experience. <laughs> I, I didn't. I went to university. I dropped out after six weeks, yeah, right. part time. Yeah, uh, right. Even that was too much for me, and I because I didn't get into uni right after school. Um, but what I really, really miss, and it took me years to gain the things that my friends got out of university. I'm not talking about a degree. I went to an all boys school. I went, to, you know, right. I, I had no idea how to talk to women. I didn't know how to be social. I didn't know. But now anything at all. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know nothing, yeah, right. and it took me. 
years. I'm talking into my late 20s until mm. I learned a lot of these skills that you get from the socialization as an adult yeah. that you start when you're at university. And, they, yeah. and I had no clue, man. And um, so you certainly got that. You certainly got a big dose of the world totally uh, on your shoulders. I mean, the other thing about it, I guess even just now it sort of popped into my head that maybe it was formative about it was that at ANU, I mean, you know, there was like the socialist alliance and you obviously you're exposed a lot to um, feminism and things like that um, at, at uni. But I think Santa Cruz was such a liberal progressive place. There was such a culture of kind of activism and protest. And that kind of influenced me a lot as well, like people living and breathing activism and especially adhering to this idea that um, that the arts could help create social change. Like, you know, thinking back on it now, that was probably quite formative as well. Yeah, all the uh, – if you look at – I remember in 2000 when George Bush nicked that election, mm. um, get all upset about it. My executive producer at Channel V says, don't worry, all the best music comes out under Republican yeah, governments. Well, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> the thing. And, he's, you know, all the best music came out under Thatcher. Let's, 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 we wouldn't have the Sex Pistols if we did not have Thatcher. Well, look, man, six, we wouldn't days, have Dead Kennedys six if we, days it might oh, herald this is, in. This is weeks ago by now. <laughs> by the time I air this, okay. it's, it's your well, yeah. when, time ago. So. When Abbott gets in, it might herald the, a new era of, of great music. Uh, well, let's hope yeah, something I mean, good comes out of the dark. Think about ages. it, man. Like Midnight Oil came out of a, yeah. a right wing. Like that's, that's you know, you've got to think that's when. Totally. That's, that's, when, that's when people shout when they're being held yeah. down and, you know. It's one of my favorite quotes. I always bang on about this poem. It's called To Posterity by Bertolt Brecht. It's my favorite poem, but there's a line in it and he, and he says, there was, there was little I could do, but without me, the leaders would have felt more secure. And I feel like that's kind of, there is very little that we can do as artists, but we've just, it's more important now than ever for brave voices, brave artistic voices to, to speak up, you know? So I'm thrilled to have you here. That's what I'm trying really to do. Am. So you came back. You came back from ANU. What was it like? You, I'm sure you, you took a bit of time to look around America a little bit. And, oh, yeah. And so you come back to, to Queen Bien. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> everyone's had that. Everyone's traveled. Everyone's oh, been overseas. So everyone's had hard. that feeling when you get back to your home, something you go, oh. It was so hard, man. I mean, I was necking a bottle of Jim Beam every night. I was just like super depressed, you know, kind of just – thrown back into it and like oh god you know my mum would always told me like Don't, you should never retrace your steps you know you always keep moving and and then i'd kind of had done just that and i've done that several times um but you know it's one of those things your hometown you always you love it and hate it at the same time but There's, you obviously then got felt that pressure and you felt well, i've got to do the next thing the next thing yeah, and was yeah. that was that money cap was that the band my, no no I, I remember i had my first gig it was at the canberra Fringe Festival, I think. As a poet? As No, 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 as a, as a hip-hop artist. Yeah. I mean, back then, man, I was, it was hilarious. Like, if I see photos, or I was rocking, like, you know, pink polos and I had long hair down my back and it's just, you know, it's hilarious to look back on it now. But it was quite an exciting time, you know. I thought, like, I can achieve anything. And then, um, yeah, I, I, this guy called Julian Fleetwood who was running this ACT Poetry Slam, he had been trying to get me involved for ages and I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I can really be bothered with that. And then he just said, look, please, you know, come along to this ACT Slam. We, we don't have enough people to fill the slots and I've heard that you rap. There's no other rappers, I don't think. And, and so come along, you just, just rap without the music. And I was like, you know what, I think so I can do that. For people who have never heard of a Poetry Slam, it sounds right. like 
Is it competitive poetry? Is that what it is? Yeah, it is. I mean, the whole idea of it was started in the 80s by a guy called um, Mark Kelly Smith in Chicago. He had a bar called The Green Mill. And um, I think he had been like a construction worker or something, but his whole idea was bringing poetry back to the people, you know. And so you get, let's say, three minutes to perform a poem that you have written, no props, no musical accompaniment, and then five randomly selected judges from the audience hold up a, a scorecard, you know, kind of like, I don't know, the diving or something. Yeah, right. Um, they knock the top score and the bottom score off just in case your, your grandma or your worst enemy is in the crowd kind uh-huh. of thing. Average out the scores and then whoever wins, wins something. You know, I think back then it was like there wasn't really money and it would be like half a bottle of vodka or like a packet of condoms or anything, you know. And, um, but it was just the whole point was that the, the judges were not experts. They were not academics. And, and it was all about how you moved the crowd. And, the, and his famous quote was, um, the point is not the points. The point is poetry. And it suddenly became this huge movement, you know, and it's all around the world. I've, I've seen slams in, in Malaysia, in, in Germany, in Sri Lanka, you know, all over the place. And, uh, and then, yeah, so I, I got involved in that. I ended up winning that Canberra one. I went to the Nationals. That, that was at the New South Wales State Library. Came second. That was 2007, I guess. Then I moved to London for a very unhappy year, trying to follow my musical dreams. Moved back for several reasons, and then I suddenly realized, oh, the slam's on again. And I was just like, okay, and the final this time was at the Sydney Opera House, so it's been a, a fertile place for me. And, um, and then, yeah, that time I, I, I won the ACT one with a bit of a battle. A really, yeah, it was really hard. There were several rounds, and then, oh. Sorry, tea, right. uh, tea, is... tea emergency here in uh, Bondi oh, yes. Beach. And then, yeah, I won the, won the Nationals at, at the Sydney Opera House. At the Sydney Opera House in the big room? No. In the mm. downstairs room? In the, in the studio. Downstairs. Yeah. It's still a yeah. great room. Great room. Great room. There's this. Yeah, the, I, you see the. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Outside the Sydney Opera House, unfortunately, the inside wasn't completed by the same architect, but it's still pretty amazing. And I've done a lot of work in that building, yeah. and the studio underneath it is—it's a pretty fantastic room. It's a very right, intense right. room. The way it's laid yeah, out, yeah. the audience is basically on top of you, yeah. and and in your face, as in your face mm. as it can possibly be. It's a very intimate performance venue. Yeah. Um, and then still, you're walking, you're coming and going from this iconic building, this yeah. this place where culture worldwide recognizes this is this is an important place to perform totally and i mean this is the thing this is a bad thing to say because i really believe that poetry slams are awesome because it just gets people to perform poetry who normally wouldn't have and you shouldn't really think about the scores and this and that but you know back then there was a five thousand dollar prize so the prize was five thousand dollars and a trip to ubud in indonesia to the 
the Writers' Festival. And at that point, I just moved back from this really hard year. I was super depressed, very lonely. My music, poetry wasn't going anywhere. I was starting to question, you know, am I going to be able to do this? I had a mastered album that I'd recorded in Seattle that I could not afford to put out. And I was just thinking to myself, like it was probably the, the worst thing to think, but I was thinking I have to win this. You know, I have to win this 5Gs. And, um, and I just, I went out and just, I, I don't know, I felt like it was mine kind of thing. And so I got it, put my first EP but that's out. What, but that's what a lot of great, that's what great performance is. I yeah. used to see it all the time when I did Australian Idol, when uh, people were auditioning and they were just singing the notes. Yeah. It didn't. It was just like, I don't know. Yeah. It was like color by numbers. Yeah. When people were auditioning and they were singing about the time that their heart got broken or about yeah. the time their dad died or about, but they were using someone else's words. It didn't matter. Yeah. It was like if they connected to that emotion, they delivered that emotion, yeah. you felt it. You got goosebumps. Totally. So I'm sure that's what you did that day. Yeah. I mean, looking back, on, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I remember a few years ago, I rewatched the performance and, you know, I think all that angst from, from, that year in London, like I put it in, I put it into it, you know, I'm sort of on the verge of tears the whole time. It's like something that doesn't really happen to me much anymore because I'm a bit more seasoned, I guess, but it was just, you know, it was, it was my heart that I was pouring out there. And, right. um, well, the crowd obviously felt it, man. Yeah. Yeah. I think they did. And it was something a bit new, you know, a, a rapper hadn't won it before. And then it, that really was the catalyst for a lot of my, I guess successes that have come since then because I was able to put my hip hop album out. I went to Indonesia to do my first real kind of shows overseas. Although I'd done a few, I guess, in the States, in the UK, but this was, you know, as like, like my name being on it kind of thing. Um, and then as, as an MC or as a poet? Both. Okay. Both. And also and it was is, my first entry into the literary world, you know, right. all of a sudden I'm there and there's, Wallace Soyinka, you know, Nobel Prize laureate there. There's a Booker Award winner there. And you're sort of just hanging, talking to all, engaging with all these people. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, I like, I felt like I belonged and, and that I could, um, I could experiment with all these different stuff. People often underestimate like, the abs just the absolute power that is in just being in the presence of people on the same path as you. Yeah. And yeah. people who are further ahead on that path. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's something really to be said about just making sure that whatever it is you want to do, get around people who are doing it better. Totally. Totally. They don't have to even tell you anything. You just have to watch. And the thing is, it was just kind of like, you know, I'd always had in the back of my head like a, a great ambition in my life was to write a novel. But I sort of, again, like with the with the hip-hop stuff, I didn't quite have the, the bravery. I didn't have the courage to do that. And then, being around all these writers, these novelists, talking about it to them, and they're just sort of saying, well, I guess one day I just decide to sit down and do it and thinking, okay, maybe I could do it, you know? And so now I'm writing a novel. And, and I think a lot of that's come from meeting these types of people. That is, that is amazing. Before we wrap up, I just want to just talk about the emceeing stuff for all because you were in a band. The band yep. was called Money Cat and you toured fairly extensively through Asia. Yeah. Um, what, what was that like knowing that you – had this enormous reception doing this thing that you may not have thought was your thing, like yeah. to do poetry. And you're like, but I'm going to be in the Wu-Tang Clan. I'm going to yeah, do yeah. this thing. I'm doing this, living this teenage dream. There's an opera house standing on their feet, giving you 5,000 bucks yeah. for this other thing that you do, but oh, I'm doing this thing. Yeah. Like at what point did you go, maybe the MC thing, like, does it still a part of you? I'm, I don't miss it's it. It's still, like, yeah, it's still a huge part yeah. of me. I'm, I miss rapping, man. Yeah. I mean, I still, I think, the the parallel I, I shouldn't use this parallel because this is a far greater man than I. But my favourite writer is is Roberto Bolaño, the Chilean writer. He's 
a genius, but he always considered himself a poet, but he wasn't that good a poet, mm -hmm. really, as far as I'm concerned. He started writing novels. He's a genius, you know, but even though he's lauded as one of the greatest novelists that Latin America has ever produced, he still considered himself a poet. And I think it's like, I'm probably a lot better at writing poetry and performing poetry than I am at rapping, but I still consider myself a rapper. Cool, man. That's, <laughs> uh, well, that, that's, 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 that's great to hear. That's, yeah. That was, what was your experience touring through Asia? What, what did you notice? Like having grown up in Queanbeyan, uh, you know, what did you, what was your experience of going through that where everything kind of smells like, uh, is that chicken off? Is it not? What's, <laughs> what are they cooking? I don't really know, but I'm going to eat it. Oh man. I was, uh, I was so exhilarated by it. You know, firstly my, my group money cat, it was myself and Marty Joe, a guy, Korean American rapper who I'd gone to uni with in California. I'd always just been his biggest fan really. I mm. mean, I think he's, he's so great. And we had just, he was on my my record, my first full length record. And I just kept thinking we should, you know, we should make a band. We should perform together. There was something about this weird mix of like an Aussie rapper and a Californian one. And there was something cool, a really cool dynamic. And so when I got the chance to perform in Ubud the second time, I just said to him, you have to come over, you know, you have to come over. And then that's what started. We got this huge reaction, you know, these big crowds were just loving it. And we weren't quite sure what it was, but there was just a feeling. Um, kind of this language of feeling i guess and and so yeah we started started money cat we changed the c to a k because you know the c in malay and indonesian is ch so people kept saying money chat and we we're like no 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 and so we made it a k money cat and it's kind of you know it was it was just a bit of a joke because we were both both asian and we'd always see these little money cats with the waving paws and just kind of have a bit of a laugh right. and it's supposed to bring in wealth and prosperity and we're talking about bringing in true wealth and prosperity you know like knowledge of self and whatnot empowerment and um and yeah, it was, it was really fun. And just seeing places like Jogjakarta in, in Indonesia with a thriving hip hop scene, but they're kind of getting 16th century Javanese texts, putting them to music, using gamelan but all, and wearing batik, but flat brim caps and, you know, these revolutionary moves. They got flamethrowers on stage and pit bulls. And, you know, the crowd is like several villages of grandmas to little babies and everyone singing every word. And just seeing how this weird yeah, goosebumps hearing you tell yeah. me about that gig, that must have been astonishing. It was crazy, man. It was like probably about, I don't know. It's a long way from a bloke with a hotel hand towel holding his nuts. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know? No, that's the thing. And, and, and I've seen it again and again around the world, like how hip hop culture is just, it's so international and has empowered so many people, but they have used it to their own means and, you know, kind of transformed it, used their own instruments, their own stories and, and uh, I find that endlessly exciting, you know, when, when I travel around the world and, and see all these people. I met people from Senegal and Brazil who are rapping, but it's got all these different sounds with this one kind of bloodline going through it. Yeah. And uh, I the first time I heard, I was 19, the first time I heard Nusrat Fat Ali Khan. Yeah. First right. time I was like, you can have hip hop beats in tubblers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was 20 years before Missy Elliott even tried yeah. it, you know. And I was these Isn't Senegalese that? guys called Dara G Family, they were probably the best live hip-hop show I've ever seen. Yeah. And I've seen a lot. Um, and they, you know, they can play all these instruments, they can rap like beasts, but they have this thing they say, um, you know, uh, hip-hop is from Africa, they say. Yeah. It just went to the US to grow, you know. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> great line. So good, so good. Um, because, you know, they say that like the rhythms and stuff are very ancient, like the, and the kind of even just speaking rhythmically over the beats and stuff. And, there's probably a lot of value in that, in what they say. That is, that's, that's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. So 
you've you've been through you've traveled all over the world and there's a lot of places that many people say really affected them affected me but without without a doubt there's no one i've ever met that's gone yeah india really didn't change me that much yeah right <laughs> what was it like in india oh in india look i was only there for about four days that might have been the biggest gig i've ever done though it was at the jaipur literary uh, literary festival or literature festival uh, which is one of the biggest in the world you know i mean it's completely free but they get you know 60 70 thousand people through the gates i think for a writers festival you're listening to juno diaz or something or, you know jm kutzia and they've got you know thousands of people listening to them talking about the the death of the american novel or whatever it is but then they have a music stage as well and so it was just like thousands of people it was a it was a massive gig and and it was really exciting like the the guys that performed after me right um snake charming has been banned i think in india so all of a sudden these snake charmers who play that instrument you know they're out of jobs so about 20 of them formed a band right and they're all playing these the snake it's a, weird, it's a weird flute with a bulb in the yeah, middle yeah, of yeah, it yeah yeah exactly and so that was after me and you know all these sort of things and and then obviously seeing like I've seen a lot of poverty in my time, you know, traveling around. Um, and I would say that, you know, quite a lot of my family in Malaysia is impoverished. But in India, I mean, it's just, it's different. That's like some of the truest, deepest poverty, most entrenched poverty I've ever seen. You know, I mean, a tarp strung over a rope and there's 20 people living under it. You know, it's just, it was really confronting, I have to say, because having traveled so much, I thought, yeah, I can sort of deal with anything. Um, but that was like, it really deeply affected me. And so with that in mind, when you come back to Australia and you're exposed to, and it, I've, I spent a lot, I live overseas most of the year and I come back here and I see, every, I see a dissatisfaction with the quality of life in this country yeah, right. that is incongruent with what's actually going on. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to upset anybody by saying, no, honestly, just it's actually pretty amazing here. Yeah. Um, because I'm sure in every system there are flaws and I'm sure in every system things are getting abused and I'm sure in every system things mm. aren't as good as they could be. Yeah, so what I was it like for few... you when you saw that in India and then you came back? Um, what was it like looking around? I mean, Australia? look, I've always known as critical as I am of Australia and I'm very, very critical. I've always known or believed that I was lucky to be born here, to be raised here. I know it, it was pure luck, you know, and I've been granted opportunities that many people will never get and I'm completely blessed to have had them. Um, but at the same time, I think that part of being patriotic is being critical, really, you know, and that it's really important that, yeah, things are great here, but they're not perfect and there are a lot of things that we can change for the better. And then another thing is, also the discrepancy, you know, there are people in Australia, in Aboriginal communities living in third world nations, uh, third world communities, conditions, while yes, in Bondi right here, the streets are definitely paved with gold. But I think that's part of it as well, is that we can do a lot better in this country and we should aim to be better, more generous, more compassionate and more creative in the way I think that we approach the future. So yeah, I think I sort of fundamentally hold both those beliefs that I'm very lucky, but um, that I'm going to keep fighting for things to be and better. And it's okay. Yeah. A lot, a, a, I get the feeling that sometimes it's like, hey, listen, things are awesome, so you just shush. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, sometimes you hear it about, for instance, misogyny in this country, and people say, oh, yeah, well, you know, go and live in Saudi Arabia and see how you f feel, you know, being oppressed as a woman. And it's kind of like, hold on a minute, you know, 
like it's not a race to see who can be the most prejudiced. It's like sure, sh- surely you can admit as I just did that thing that we're very lucky, but then also things can be better and we can work out a different system or a different way of doing things when it comes to these sort of issues. And then certainly, I kind of hate that. It's very, it's a really lazy sort of thing to say. It certainly informs the the poetry that I've seen of you. This, this, yeah. you can definitely feel that coming through when you when you talk. You, you when you perform, it's definitely what I get is you're definitely trying to perhaps hold back a curtain to a part of Australia that a lot of mm. people may not realise. Totally, and it's a part of Australia that I think we should be really proud of. You know, multiculturalism among many people in Australia has become a really kind of dirty word you're more australian than me and i, don't I wasn't even be. born here yeah right <laughs> both yeah. my parents have been refugees at one point in their life yeah, so. yeah. it's just so you should be telling me <laughs> yeah and it's um and i think we should be really proud of that like it's 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 the side of australia that i'm that i like the most you know is yeah. the kind of multi-toned multi-textured side and it's something that should be celebrated instead of being kind of kicked around so what do you dirt. want people what did I? I wrote it down here. It's a bit full on. Right. Uh, Sounds like one of those curly. Yeah, it's okay. Balls. What? What? Are, now forgive me, but this is what I wrote last night when I was. <laughs> That's exactly. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna ask it. What do white-skinned Australians need to know about their growing band of brown brethren that also love this country? <laughs> That we're not so bad. We're not such bad people. We've got a lot of ideas, got a lot of generosity. We've got a lot of bloody good food. So just relax. Just relax is what I need. want to tell people. Either knock it off or relax. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be all right. Here, Everything's going to be all right. Let me put together this rad beef curry I made for an Indonesian poet yeah, once. Exactly. It's, you'll try it. It'd be really nice. You know where we've got a lot of good poetry too. I think the coolest thing I've seen since I've been involved in, in uh, the slam scene is that poetry or poets in this country are getting browner. There's a lot more, you know, you kind of go to gigs in Melbourne, there's, you know, um, people who maybe 10 years ago I wouldn't have really seen performing poetry, sort of, yeah, Middle Eastern kids, Islander kids, Sudanese kids, you know, feeling that now they've got a form of poetry alongside hip-hop, of course, and other, and other forms of music that, where they can really express themselves, and that's really cool. So well, white people, be, be happy for that. Just enjoy, enjoy a different dish this week, and, <laughs> and it's going to be okay. Um, so just before we get out of here, uh, I, I know you've got to go to a meeting, but there's, there's a few other things I want to, I want to come through sure. with you. I want to talk about your books. I want to talk about Ted. Yep. But just wrapping up the hip-hop thing, um, as a young man getting into Aussie hip-hop, I was – and I, I, I used to talk about this on Channel V all the time – that I was always disillusioned by Australians rapping in an American accent. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. It's a hard one. I'm probably not as mi- – no, you know what? I, I, I can't stand it. It makes me cringe. It really makes me cringe because – it makes me cringe at the cultural cringe of it because I feel that's what it is. It's like people aren't proud of their voices and you don't want to be parochial about it or weirdly kind of nationalistic, but it's like own your voice. Own where you come from, you know? It's as cool as anything. Like once upon a time, no one knew – where Compton was, people thought that was just a, a shithole, hub city, you know, I mean, it kind of is, but it's like, but all of a sudden, this group of guys from Compton were like, you know what, screw it, our place may be a shithole, but it's our shithole, and we're proud of it, and so I feel like people should just 
own their voices, own their stories. When I hear someone rapping in an American accent, it just shows me that they think that they're not good enough. And Australia's had that problem for years. It's like, unless we're validated by America or Britain, it's just not worth anything. And we still have that. And I think it's a, it's a representation of that. Wow, that's, that's pretty heavy, man. Yeah, that's, that's how I feel. It's just like, if you can't be proud of your voice, like, what can you be proud of? But having said that, you know, I don't want to be too hardline about it because it's sort of, you know, you, know, you can't set rules for art. You can't set rules for hip hop. You know, sometimes if people want to explore characters in their art, they should be allowed to do that and push their voices. But I think my gut instinct is always just, oh, God, that's painful. I'll be never proud be able where to come from. Yeah. Exactly. Proud of where you come from. Even if you are from the Central Coast and your name is Schmillionaire. Totally. <laughs> I mean, people always laugh about it. It's, it's so funny, man, when I travel like, and people will just go to me, oh, yeah, when I come to Australia, I can't wait to visit Queanbeyan. You know, I'm just like, oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm just like repping it so hard. They think it's probably this like idyllic paradise or something. <laughs> so, you know, Queanbeyan tourism, if you're out there, you should pay me the big bucks. You've got a rad baker's delight in Queanbeyan. Oh, totally. The Royal, the Royal Hotel has been done up. You know, the Central Cafe, which once upon a time had the biggest steaks in the Southern Hemisphere, still does a pretty mean steak and a mixed grill. In the QBN, yo. In the QBN. And, and the Malongolo River is still beautiful. The black swans still flutter about there. Oh, it's, fantastic. it's a lovely place. So you're, you've, you've, you've been exposed to these, uh, these writing festivals. At what point did you go, that's it, I am going to write a book? And, and, and you've self-published uh, two things now and you've now got yep. – You've now got an actual deal with Penguin, like a, a real proper publishing yep. scenario. Like, at what point did you go? Okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do what they said. I'm just gonna do it. I had this idea. I'd always thought that a bushfire would be a really good setting for a book, and I'd never really read an awesome Aussie novel that had that as the backdrop. And I wondered why it's such an elemental Australian thing and so dramatic. A bushfire, and I'd lived through the Canberra ones, you know, in 2002, I guess. God, horrific. Man. Horrific, yeah, and um, and to have these images like of hundred homes or something, got yeah, destroyed. yeah, a lot yeah. Of people died, and it happened in a day. It, it was, was it was crazy. I mean, I remember, you know, I've got some indelible memories sort of imprinted on my brain from that, and I'd always had this idea about it, sketched down just a few a few little notes, and I'd heard somewhere that a lot of fire starters masturbate over the fires, and so I kind of had this because it's it's a, a power thing. These people feel powerless and impotent, and they sort of um, we're this talking is one about the thing. guys that hike out in the national forest with a can of gas, yeah, boxer matches. Oftentimes, young men, always men, pretty much. White like, men. It's, yeah, it's really hard to find um, female arsonists, supposedly. Um, and they really, I had no idea they got yeah. sexual. There was a sexual element to yeah, it. Yeah, there's a sexual element to it. And so I kind of had this image of this big fire and a man with his pants down, just jacking off over the fire. And uh, and I, I don't know, it just said something to me about like kind of impotence and Aussie masculinity in this weird way. And, uh, and I was being interviewed by a lady called Sophie Cunningham, a great writer, great um, editor. And uh, she was asking me what I'd been working on and kind of just talking at my ass. I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm sort of working on this Dorothy Porter-esque, you know, verse novel about a bushfire. And off air, she was just like, oh, that's amazing. I would love to read something. Like, can you send me something? And I was just like, oh, you know, give me a few weeks. I went off like typed up a chapter about you know hip-hop greyhounds cocaine bushfires and sent it to her and she said okay we need to meet you know i want and and um and so she said you'll need a bit more than this um and i was like okay so i wrote a couple more chapters sent it to someone i knew at penguin sent it to someone I knew at another publisher they you know they both made offers and yeah i 
I chose Penguin in the end because I knew the editor there and I, tr I trusted him. I trusted his judgment. So I don't know, man. It's I'm still right in the middle of it and it's driving me slowly crazy. But one of these I days, I can't wait to read it, man. Because like, it's a part of it's a part of every summer in this country. Even now, like yeah. we're recording this uh, early September and Sydney smells like bushfires, yeah. but it's back burning because we've had such a warm winter. Mm. They're back burning. They're just kind of preparing the ground around the city so that when we do get the forty something degree day, yeah. we do get that lightning strike or your mate with yeah. his pants down yeah, is yeah, out in the yeah. woods that it's not going to cause that much havoc so it's there's nothing worse as an australian to wake up and smell that oh, smell yeah. of eucalyptus burning exactly it's just terrifying yeah and it's it really is like the apocalypse you know i remember my friend and i my mate dan and i were <laughs> this is really bizarre we had we had done all the things you know filled the gutters with water and blocked it all off and everything and we cooked a lasagna and we were sitting on the roof of his place in Aranda in Canberra, just watching the sky is black. You know, it's a black sky, a red sun. There's choppers going everywhere. And then you kind of look at your shoulders and suddenly realize that it looks like you've got black dandruff. You know, it's like this black kind of fine ash all over you. And you just think it's like the end of the world. And I'll never forget it. Well, I, I certainly hope we get through this summer without that. Yeah, I hope, yeah, I hope that kind of stuff is behind us. It won't be, but yeah. it'd be nice if, if that were behind us. So um, I know you have to get out of here. So no worries. But yeah, I, I, so I, many, I, so I, many different projects. I man. do want to ask. I just want to ask. Like, if I paid, I think I paid twenty five bucks for your your book, your audio book online. How's that been going? You you've you recorded a book of poetry, and you said just pay what you want. Yeah. To people. Why did you do that? Why did you just put it on iTunes? I'd always wanted to try that out. Just yeah. It was just an experiment, really, because I'd heard of people doing it. I think the first really famous case was, was it Radiohead? It was Radiohead, yeah. I just thought, I wonder if it levels out. It didn't completely level out, but I just thought it would be interesting to see if some people, you know, there were people, some people would give like $50, $60. Obviously, a lot of people right. get it for free. Um, but I just wanted to to give something, you yeah. know. And so I quite like the DIY independent route. You know, that's why I did this latest book of poetry was because I knew that the book coming out of Penguin, it's a major thing. I wanted something where I was, was giving my supporters um, something that I could sign and send myself, you know. Yeah. And then, and then the, the recording of it was just a, uh, an extension of that because, you know, different producers have said, oh, it'd be really cool to sample your stuff. And then other people were like, well, we want to know how you would read it. And I thought, why not? So I just got in the One Day Studios um, with DJ Joyride, just uh, recorded it in a session. Yeah, it was good. You can hear me get my BBC voice on. BBC? No, probably not. What? Oh, right, your BBC voice, yeah, like yeah, British yeah. Broadcast. Yeah. Right. Hi, I'm Amos. All right. Uh, so uh, before you get out of here, just tell us the TED story. How did that happen? How did it come to you? And and what was that day like because i'm sure if anyone's listening to this by now they would have stopped this gone and watched the video i hope so uh if not stop this right now go watch the video um it's omar getting a standing o at the sydney opera house at tedx um what how did that come to you so my friend um jess scully she's an advocate for the arts here in sydney bit of a young icon i would say of the arts in in sydney and australia um, she, I think, I'm not sure if she was on the advisory committee or something. She had something to do with TEDx and she just floated the idea. Would you like to, um, do a TED talk? And then I just said, yeah, you know, I was kind of thinking about it and it was like, oh, wow, on the main stage of the opera house, this is an opportunity I never thought I would have. Why not? And I knew that it was my opportunity, um, to portray Australia as I 
see it. And, uh, and so I decided to combine the idea of a talk and a poem so that it would shift in and out of, you weren't quite sure whether it was a poem, is it a speech, you know, what is it? Um, and I'd written a poem that I think even to this day is probably my most well-known one called My Generation that I performed on Q&A. Um, you know, it got me a lot of attention, but also, you know, some some bad attention. It's, a, it's a primetime current affairs program where there's an actual debate that happens, which is uncommon yeah. as well to have actual debate. Yeah, it was that was a huge moment for me. But I kind of had some young people writing to me saying, wow, you know, it's such a nihilistic, pessimistic view of our generation. I mean, I knew that when I was writing it, but I did it to sh- kind of shake people up. I think sometimes, you know, poetry should be a bit of an ice pick to the brain or to the heart and it's just kind of just hit people hard you know and so that I was very angry at the at the apathy and materialism of Australia and so I wrote this poem called My Generation but this young young woman said to me you know you could have written an entirely different poem called My Generation that put a positive slant on the people who are fighting and the artists and the people trying to break down the walls and so this was kind of the the one that I did at TEDx capital letters was sort of my generation too, but the other angle on it about resilience and bravery and courage and creativity. And um, it was a huge moment for me. And I, I knew it would be as well. Like I kind of knew this was a big chance for me to get my voice across, but I didn't think it would go as sort of swimmingly as it did. Uh, but it was great. And, you know, Tom Thumb as well performed on the same day, who's a really close friend of mine. And he got a standing ovation as well. And so hip hop was definitely in the building, but he, uh, yeah, he also went on to have the most, it was the most viewed TEDx talk ever, his one on beatboxing. Wow. Within three days. Considering the three TEDx point, talks that are out there. Yeah. 3.5 million views in three days. Now Damn. it's up to like five or six. Well, what, what's been the most uh, remarkable reaction for you from the TEDx, from furthest away, the most? <laughs> I mean, Russell Crowe wrote to me about it. That was quite funny. Wow. He was... Um, driving his car down the highway somewhere and he just said, oh, yeah, you sounded great on the radio, mate. And I was like, bloody hell. And then he gave me a call in New York, actually, which was quite bizarre, sort of, you know, get, answering a, a private number and, you know, it's, g'day, mate, it's Russell. And he's like, oh, hey, what's up, man? <laughs> I'm going to go on record right here. He is, truly, he's one of the most fantastic human beings. Such a good heart. He's such a great man. He really is. He's man. really he's been very supportive of me. You know, this wasn't the first time that Russell has shown shown me his encouragement. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's just nuts to me that all of a sudden, you know, and Therese Rain, you know, Kevin Rudd's wife is sort of writing to me and saying, "Oh yeah, I saw you on TV and this and that." You're going, "Bloody hell, this this is crazy." I mean, because bringing it full circle to the beginning of our talk, I'm a poet. You know, <laughs> like it's not normal for poets to get this kind of exposure and i, I tell that's you what i'm saying is why i'm so excited you're here you know i feel really really proud man i feel i feel blessed and proud as so people are listening to this they're fired up they want to follow you more on twitter it's at omam no it's a obm music obm music omar been with some music obm music so at obm yep. music on twitter yeah uh and your your website where people can go buy the book you know what i need to get paid more because my website has been shut down because i couldn't pay the upkeep but i've got omarbinmusa.blogspot.com but facebook is probably on on my official writers pages where i do most of my updates so that's omar musa qbn of course um so yeah come and find me absolutely i talk much trash every now and then it's it's deep and so right now the next thing people google what's what's a poet they can google it'll change their day besides besides googling omar musa tedx sydney 
Oh man, where do I start? Just okay. one, like for a young woman or and then a young man. Okay, let me let me do three. Cool. Two no, I'm gonna do four. All right. Lorca, L-O-R-C-A, Spanish poet, one of my favorites. He's kind of the poet that makes you simultaneously want to get better at writing poetry or just quit because uh-huh. he's so good. Faiz Ahmed Faiz, greatest Urdu poet. That's A-H-M-E-D. Yeah, so F-A-I-Z. Just write that, yeah. Faiz, and that'll come up. Two living ones, two of my favorite Australian poets, Luca Lesson, L-U-K-A, Lesson. He also won the Australian Poetry Slam. Great Greek-Australian writer, amazing performer, and Alia Gabres, A-L-I-A-G-A-B-R-E-S, Eritrean Australian girl, performance poet, beautiful, beautifully turned poetry. So check out those. I'm giving you the gold. I'm giving you the gold. Thank you so much. It's going to be, you're going to make some great art in the next three years. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. Omar Musa, thank you. Thank you, sir. There it is. That's the show. That's Omar Musa. Find him on Twitter at OBM Music. That's where you can find him. Let him know you heard him here. I'll put a link to where you can buy his book up on osherginsberg.com as well. There's loads of other episodes if you just joined us. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. If you are in Australia, um, The Bachelor starts here this week. I know it's got nothing to do with what we were talking about during that show, but my day job, The Bachelor, we start a new season this week, Wednesday night. I'm in TV host mode. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun show, this one. Um, first episode is actually really good. It's pretty exciting. I hope you like that. But thank you for being here. Thank you for being uh, very much for being a part of the show. It, it makes my day that you download it. I watch where you download from. You're all over the world in all different places, and it really is just fantastic. So have a great week. Look after yourself and um, sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Wake up just that little bit before your alarm, just in peace. Yeah, I love that. I wish that for you because I wish that for me. I wish we could all wake up like that. All right, have a great week. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 